0: Hello and welcome again to the CRASH podcast, which is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termizai, Consultant Radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Renken Professor. In this series, we talk to inspirational radiologists from across the UK at different stages of their career, all of whom are involved in academic radiology and research. From starting out as a trainee all the way through to leading whole research programmes, we explore the motivations, the rewards and the challenges of a career in academic radiology. And while we're at it, a little bit about the radiologists themselves. Last time in episode one, we spoke to three trainee radiologists, all of whom have aspirations for a career in academic radiology and by coincidence also wanted to be interventional radiologists. In this second episode, we talked to four radiologists who are slightly more senior and have well and truly got underway with their research. They've all powered through or can at least see some form of light at the end of the tunnel for their PhD. We'll discuss how they secured their PhD opportunity, the highs and lows of the journey and what they plan to do next. So I'm delighted to be joined this episode by Susie Shalmadine, Radiology Research Fellow at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, Russell Froude, Clinical Radiology Fellow currently studying for his PhD in Leeds, Anu Abaro, Post-CCT PhD Fellow at St. Mark's Hospital London and Tim Bray, Clinical Lecturer in Radiology at University College London. Welcome everyone. So as a really quick opener, and given that we're going to be talking about our PhD experiences today, let's put the pressure on straight away and see if each of you can summarize your PhD research in one sentence only folks, in a way that anyone could understand. So let's go around. Tim, do you wanna see if you can do that for us?
1: Yeah, uh, so my PhD research was on quantitative MRI and really the goal of quantitative MRI is to use the scanner as a measuring device. Rather than just generating images, we want to measure some physical property of the tissue in each pixel. And this has benefits for a whole range of applications like diagnosis, uh, prognosis, and monitoring of disease. Fantastic. I think that's one sentence.
0: Well done. Uh, Anu, do you want to have a crack?
2: My PhD could be summarized as uh, investigating how good radiologists are at reporting CT colonography scans in bowel cancer screening and once we know how good they are, seeing if we can make them better, full stop.
0: Fantastic, (laughs) punctuation included. And have you got an answer for us? It's variable and we can make them much better. Good stuff. Okay, Russell, your turn. Thank you. So my PhD is looking at
3: um, predicting treatment outcomes in uh, lymphoma patients using artificial intelligence based from their
0: baseline PET CT. Good stuff, nice. And Susie, your turn. Thanks,
4: well, rather than one sentence, I think my PhD can be summed up with one question, which is, can we replace childhood autopsies with imaging techniques? So in other words, what's the most accurate and least invasive way to understand why a child has died?
0: Okay, so that is also asking for an answer. Did you have one?
4: Yes. Well, it's a variety of different things and it really depends in what circumstance, what age of the child and what was their predisposing condition. Very much like clinical radiology for live patients, it also applies to the dead.
0: Okay, good stuff. Well, we can come back to some of this a bit later on. I'm, I'll give you a, a bit more of a chance to expand on that. It would be a bit unfair to summarise combined 12 years of hard work into just four sentences, um, you know, we'll have a lot more to discuss around this. So let's just, you know, go back to the introductions. I haven't really given you the opportunity to introduce yourself properly. So Tim, coming back to you, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be where you are today?
1: Um, so I first got interested in research when I was a medical student. Um, I actually did an intercalated uh, degree in neuroscience. And I got involved in a, in a project which was really interesting, which was about the physiology of the motor system in the brain and I just I worked with a guy called um, Roger Carpenter who I found particularly inspirational and the whole process of research just seemed to be very creative and dynamic to me. Uh, so from that point on I, I kind of knew that I wanted to do research, although I didn't really know what in. I found it a bit difficult going to clinical school, sort of leaving that world and, and trying to get immersed in some completely different and much more practical stuff. So I was kind of grasping for a while about what to do. And when I was a foundation doctor, I worked at Papworth and also at Cambridge doing neurosurgery and I, I just came across imaging, particularly MRI scans of the heart and the brain. And I just thought that radiology was this great intersection between science and technology and looking after patients. I thought that that was gonna become a bigger a bigger part of medicine in the future. So I I really did pick radiology with a view to doing research in that subject.
0: So the research came first almost and then the radiology think, was something
1: that I think it did actually, although it took me a while to find an actual project which I could get involved in. For a number of years I didn't really know how I was gonna do it, if it was gonna work out at all. I, I I couldn't I couldn't quite find the way, but but I did know I think all along that I wanted to do that.
0: Thanks very much for the, for the introduction. Look, one of the most important things about the um, the Crash podcast is the crash test. As a reminder for our listeners and an introduction um, for our new guests this episode, the crash test involves answering a set of quick fire questions um, that they will select from the crash test grid answering honestly as possible, but then I have no way of verifying the answers that you give me. Um, The idea is to find out a little bit more about you, our guests as individuals, uh, taking a quick peek behind the mask, if you will. But uh, don't worry, listeners, we're all meeting online, so it's all COVID compliant. Tim, since you've given us your introduction, um, if you are ready, let's fire up the crash test grid. As you can see, we've got uh, 16 questions, a little bit multicolored this week, just to jazz things up a little bit. Um, if you would like to choose the first of your four. Uh, number five. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. Which is the best My Little Pony? You can tell what stage of life I'm at. I don't, I don't know any, I'm afraid. Twilight Sparkle, that's uh, clearly okay. right wrong. answer. Yeah, yeah Ron, <laughs> Would you like to choose another one? Ten. What's your most annoying habit? I'm very
1: impatient. I'd say that's my most annoying quality. Not a habit, but I'm impatient.
0: Okay, you're not the first to say that. No, good. Okay, what's the next one? Uh, 11. What's your least favourite biscuit?
1: Mm, I don't like custard creams. I find them a bit strange.
0: Oh, you're going to get bashed on Twitter for that one. Right, so that was the whole point of that question. What's the last one then? Go on. Okay, we'll go 15 then. What's been your most embarrassing haircut? I think my
1: my most embarrassing haircut would just be having a very short haircut, which doesn't look good when you're
0: a bit thin on top, actually. So Anu, moving on to you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you came to be where you are today?
2: Yes. So I studied at King's College Hospital in London and I did um, a degree before I went to med school. Um, went to med school, thought for maybe 15 minutes or so that I wanted to do surgery, came to my senses, applied for radiology, became a radiologist. went through my radiology training quite happily a GI radiologist and then um, had my first son right at the end of my training so it was like ST5 or something and um, came back from that leave two weeks before I CCT'd decided that's not a great idea to step straight into a consultant post that I haven't arranged and haven't sorted out and was basically thrown back into on call and thought I need to find something else to do. Um, I had been going to St. Mark's every week to do some kind of top-up GI training Um, and an opportunity came up there to do an MD and it was very serendipitous and um, I needed a job (laughs) so I applied to do the MD and was successful and so I ended up being a post-CCT research fellow. I was maybe a little bit different in that I hadn't necessarily really considered going into academia. I kind of tripped and fell and academia caught me and so there was already a project that needed someone to kind of work on and push through, so I kind of walked into a project and when I turned up on day one, um, my supervisor was like, you know, I know you interviewed for an MD but the project's kind of long, it's probably going to take more than two years. How do you feel about a PhD? I was like, do they give them away for free? Like, you could just, I can just have it? Sure. So um, so that's how it became a PhD. And, you know, obviously you had to then apply for UCL and get it all co-signed and all the rest of it. And um, so that was 2016. So I'm just kind of finishing up now and getting right into writing my thesis which I think I'm supposed to have done quite a lot of by now, but COVID. And then, so in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be going back into clinical practice. And um, yeah, I need to get a consultant job at some point. That would be good. So that's kind of how I ended up here. So often I feel a bit like a fraud because I feel like people in academia are really serious about it. And I'm kind of like, what's <laughs> going on over here? <laughs> But yeah, so that's how I ended
0: up kind I, of here. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you that I think maybe all of us have felt something like that at some point, uh, unless we're impervious with wings of, <laughs> wings of steel. But uh, okay, what a good point then to go into the second round of the crash test.
2: Um, I'm gonna go with number eight, please.
0: Disney Plus or Netflix? Oh, Netflix, next. Uh, Next, straight on. Okay, Um, next one.
2: Four, please.
0: Have you ever had an x ray? No. No? Okay, good. Next one. 16. What is your secret talent? I can
2: take a really good photo of someone else.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Have you ever made any money from that? Ever sold any photos or?
2: Yeah, I have a photography business. Oh, congratulations.
0: That's awesome. Good stuff. Thank you. Okay, next one. Number two. Uh, I like this one. How many times did you fail your driving test? And, Zero. Yeah, there's a lot. Passed Zero. Yes. Okay, so we were maintaining the record. Um, Susie, how many times did you fail your driving test? You to ask everyone.
4: I passed it first time.
0: Okay. Oh, Excellent. Dear. That is 100% record. <laughs> I'm looking at some sweat now on the boys' brows. Uh, Russell.
3: I would like to clarify. It wasn't my fault the first
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And Tim?
1: I failed four times, actually. Four.
0: Oh! Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Oh man, I mustn't laugh. Too many
1: many majors for me to bother describing them individually, I think.
0: Oh, okay, right. Okay, well, I was hoping to have a little prize at the end, and Tim, you look to be well on track. Good stuff. Okay, right, well, let's move on. Thanks very much, Annie, for for doing the crash test there. Russell, uh, your turn to tell us, please, a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be where you are today.
3: Yeah, sure. Like Tim, I did a intercalation in neuroscience, but at that point, I wasn't that keen on academia when I came out of it. <laughs> I did my F1, F2 jobs and I didn't really like the ward. I liked thinking about patients. so And I liked the surgical aspect more. So I thought radiology with intervention skills, um, with intervention, it'd be a good specialty. Again, went into radiology straight after F2, not really considering academia at all, and just got involved with simple audits, simple quality improvement projects, and started to like it, and that progressed to some more serious projects. And then I thought, Wow, this is quite good, I enjoy this. I like the the varied skills, so radiology is quite varied, but also academia is quite varied. Um, I thought I'd like to just explore it a little bit more and took a year out, a new PAR, um, and aimed to get the uh, RCR uh, academic certificate, the research certificate. Um, I was very lucky and I was quite successful that year. And it just I kindled a passion for academia, and made me want to apply for a PhD. And I used that those skills from that year to apply for a PhD after my, well, the end of my fourth year. Unfortunately, I didn't get the PhD I applied for, which is academia all over. Um, in the NIHI interview, I completely fluffed it. Ended up being fortunate and applied for a, a research fellowship position, which was three years and had the opportunity to do a PhD as well. And which is where i am now
0: fantastic so we're already seeing that there are very different ways of getting to the this point and we've all had different motivations we found ourselves getting there in different ways but ultimately i think we're all motivated or found so far and i'm not speaking on susie's behalf that we're we, you know that we've um we've really been drawn into it so let's go on now to slightly less seriously the crash test Would you like to pick the first of your four numbers uh one please three o'clock tea or gmt uh, GMT. okay yep next one uh 12 please uh what's your signature dish that you would cook on a date
3: uh, I, well, a signature dish is bolognese, but I remember my wife, the first time she came around for a date, it was in halls. I, I put a little table in my room, two chairs, some candles, but I made chicken in white wine sauce with grapes in it. I don't think she really liked it.
0: Oh, that's such a nice story. <laughs> but she married you, yeah? Uh, yeah, she did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Can't 11
3: be. years later, after she got over oh. that. Think, yeah.
0: Good stuff. Okay, next one.
3: Uh, number six, please.
0: Yeah, what would you most like to change about yourself?
3: My habit of singing my name. Whenever I'm alone, well, I think I'm alone, I'll just start singing and I'll just (laughs) sing my name like a Pokemon. I'd like to change that.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. No, don't change that. No, keep that. That's fantastic. Go on then, last one. Uh, Number seven, please. Uh, What career would you have had if you weren't a doctor?
3: I think I'd be a computer games designer.
0: Good stuff. Well, thanks very much Ross for doing the crash test, Susie. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and uh, how you came to be where you are today?
4: Yes, yeah, so like some of the other speakers today, I also did an intercalated BSc during medical school at St. George's Hospital Medical School. Um, and it wasn't my first choice BSc. I really, really, from a very early stage, wanted to be a surgeon, again, like some other people on this panel. And I really wanted to do a BSc in anatomy, but the spaces were full. So I ended up doing a BSc in medical physics. And that's how I started getting into learning about radiology and how machines work and how imaging works but even then I wasn't that interested in research so much and um, it was really just through um, training and learning that and doing projects along the way that I got interested but I was actually from quite a young stage a little bit anti-research. I felt that research meant you weren't a good doctor if you were doing that. And my goal was to be the best doctor I could be. Obviously my thought on that has changed somewhat through the times, but at that time, everything was be the best doctor you can be. Don't take up any academic roles. Don't do any ACF posts. You need to be good and really hot on your clinical skills because that's what matters the most. And so during my foundation training, I really wanted to be a surgeon, I even did the MRC during my um, uh, training in foundation school and then actually through just personal circumstances I realized when it came to applying for specialty training that radiology was the thing that I probably could see myself doing long term rather than just for the next five to ten years. And I came to that mainly because the thing about surgery that I loved the most was assisting in laparotomies and looking inside of people which sounds super gory but it was more the let's see what we find in here let's be the first one to explore this let's you know find out what was causing their abdominal pain that was the thing that really drove me and i realized i can do that every day without opening people up with imaging and through radiology training <laughs> the new ct came on the list it was like opening a christmas present It'd be like wow what do we find inside this one today kind of thing um and so that was general radiology and then I got into pediatric radiology through a rotation I did at Great Ormond Street and there were great mentors there, really supportive consultants. There was the huge drive to being excellent at what you do clinically and also academic side to that as well. There were lots of projects going on and um, my current PhD supervisor was working there at the time as well and ran the journal clubs and really tried to get us to understand research critically appraise papers I also did the RCR research certificate during that time and that gave me more insight into what research involved and I realized it was all about making things better for patients trying to discover new ways of doing things and it wasn't you know, stuffy old professors in their offices who don't want to touch the patients and trying to, you know, rid themselves of the clinical work, which is kind of the impression and stereotype I had before that, which I'm sure many people do as well. Anyway, um, as I said before, my primary goal was to be a really good clinician. So after I did my radiology general training, I did um, a clinical PEDS radiology fellowship at Great Woman Street. Then I went to Toronto for a year post-CCT and did a fellowship there. And again, I met some great mentors who were very keen on research and very keen on clinical skills. And I could see how the two married up and were complementary rather than antagonistic. And then when it came to the end of that fellowship, I had a crossroads in my life. Do I do academia or do I go for a consultant clinical job? And I was just very lucky that an opportunity came up to try to do research. It wasn't easy to get into the PhD um, which I'm sure you'll touch upon later on but in a nutshell there wasn't actually funding available for me there was some slush funding for me to do a year as a fellow back in Great Woman Street but being paid as an ST4 instead of an ST7 which is what I was and then trying to make up some banding through doing bits and pieces of on calls and extra work around the side And no funding for the PhD, no funding for the salary for the PhD. And it was really through applying to the MRC through the MRC-RCR Joint Clinical Research Training Fellowship um, that I was successful. But um, I I probably wouldn't advise people doing it that way, which I'm sure you'll come to later in the future questions, but (laughs) I would do differently. Um, I'm now at the end of my PhD. I submitted in March. I was VIORD just um last month and I passed with minor corrections. So I'm now just finishing off the corrections for
0: my PhD. You got a round of applause there for uh passing your VIVA, so congratulations. That's good stuff. Thanks. You seem to have a light bulb moment at some point that you didn't need to, to cut someone open to see inside them. Um, so I think most surgeons have followed you in that route, and now that's why we're asked to scan uh, most things. But let's see if you can have a few more light bulb moments with the last part of the crash test.
4: Uh, lucky 13.
0: Wiley, Coyote, or Roadrunner?
4: Roadrunner, for sure. Okay. Uh, number nine. How many musical instruments can you play? Two very badly, um, I guess three if you count singing, but I play the piano and the guitar um, in high school and I haven't practised as much as I'd like to. So. Yeah,
0: did you um, want, uh, two more. Fourteen. Please. What's the most ridiculous item of clothing you've bought and actually have worn?
4: I've bought a lot of ridiculous clothing. I'm still to wear some of them. The most ridiculous I have is a really fluorescent eye-catching pink dress which I wore just the other week for the first time i never felt confident enough to wear it but I thought I was doing a paediatric ultrasound list and I thought the kids might like it so it wasn't too bad so <laughs> you managed
0: people... to find a, a way of uh, justifying it without being judged
4: uh, a lot of people did raise an eyebrow at it they you know nice dress they'd say that <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All
0: right, let's do the last one
4: okay number three
0: um, Glastonbury or Glindborn?
4: Uh Glastonbury
0: I guess Look, thank you so much, Dizzy, for doing the crash test. Okay, so let's actually move on to what we're here to talk about today after all of that. In episode one, we talked a lot about what drew us to train in radiology and your introductions today have given us some really good highlights as to the similar thought processes involved. And then thinking about what drew you to seek out um, dedicated academic time. And I still think that's a very important question. So let's just quickly touch on that again. I remember you saying, Susie, that actually you didn't feel straight away that research was something that was core and maybe a bit of a distraction. But was there any key clinching moment that you felt Uh, pushed you to say, right, this is definitely something that I want to do. I don't think there was a particular
4: one moment as such, it was very multifactorial, it was just learning how to read papers, learning to put a project together, trying to figure out what was a good research question, what wasn't and then just everything clicking in place and thinking, ah, so this is how it works and this is what people talk about and this is why people stand up and ask really difficult questions in audiences and conferences and you know, I never really understood what they were getting at with, you know, all of this posturing. But then, just realizing why it all came together and why things were important in a particular project, I think that was what really drove me to thinking I could actually do this, and I understand why it matters so much. Um,
0: Russell, did you have any uh, moments, or was there, a, was it more gradual for you?
3: I th- yeah, I think it was more of a, a gradual process. I think I just slowly leaned towards. Academia—the more that I did, and the more I enjoyed it—and I think it's that that feeling when you first get your first publication or your first presentation at a meeting. It's it's just a nice feeling, and it it, it makes you want to do more. Well, in my case, it's made me want to keep going. If it's a positive I was... experience, I think yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so far, it's been positive, which is good, which is good. Um, but there are, like, with most things, there are also negatives. But it's learning to deal with those negatives isn't it academia's got its ups and downs and um, but it's if you can cope with the downs and enjoy the ups I think that's I think that's what's I don't know that's why I've gone into it just because I enjoyed that.
0: Uh, Tim uh, yourself you remember you saying that right from the start you felt that that was something that you were going to be entertaining as part of your career. Yeah
1: there, were, there was there was some particular projects I I did as I mentioned um, during my undergraduate degree which I enjoyed and I think gave me the enthusiasm to begin with. But again, I think there probably were lots of different elements to it. I mean, I remember someone uh, saying to me when I was a foundation doctor that the great thing about being an academic was that you got to uh, write the textbooks rather than just read them. And that kind of resonated with me. I think that I find it exciting to try and figure out how to do things for the first time and actually quite like a situation where there are no established rules. There's no guideline. You just have to to figure it out.
0: Anu and yourself. Uh, again, you told us a little bit about the, the the story, but were there any sort of seminal moments?
2: Uh, no, I did a, a BSc before I went into medicine, so really I probably was more of an academic than I thought. And then I think, uh, like um, everybody else on the panel, I think I quite enjoy that investigative nature of what we get to do and the real searching for answers and putting together things. and. And getting an insight that maybe people haven't had before which is i think really exciting and so i think for me it was yeah it kind of osmosed into it it wasn't like a you know like a, a sudden um turning point but kind of okay well this is a great next potential opportunity and actually when i look back over my career i probably have inadvertently been going in this direction without without realizing and now it's the time and the opportunity to To kind
0: of get serious about it and see what what I can make out of it. And that's an interesting take the fact that you sort of find yourself in the right position because I think you have Mm. to be in the right position to fit what if you look from the other side what people are looking for to be successful you may not necessarily know that when you are pushing at the front door, but the people on the other side, they're going to have a good sense. So, and I think maybe Russell mentioned luck as part of it. And I think more than one of us has been through, you know, several attempts at it. And I think determination as well, if you are quite aware, this is where the way you want to go plays, plays a big part. And R- Russell, can I come back to you actually to ask to the next question, which is PhDs are, to- are things in which the topic is very focused. And in episode one, when we were speaking to our ACFs, we touched a little bit on how they might know what they will end up researching. What was it that shaped the decision around your PhD? Again, you've given us a few hints, but I wonder if you could expand on that and how you end up choosing that specific topic that's going to be your next three years.
3: I think many people, when they start their PhD, they have an idea of what it's going to be, and it turns out to be completely different by the end of it and in my case as i said i'd applied for a phd looking at neuroimaging and went to nihr the interview didn't get that and then felt that i still wanted to do a phd this project wasn't going to go anywhere wasn't going to help me get to my goal of getting a phd and there was a fellowship being advertised um, locally three-year fellowship looking at ai so i applied for that went into it and one of the projects in this, at my center, was looking at lymphoma, lymphoma imaging. And there wasn't really a, a steer of where the PhD was going at that point. Um, but it's all about reading, background reading, looking at what papers have been published before, looking at what, what data there is that we have to work with, because it was based on nuclear medicine, so PET imaging, and um, looking at the number of patients we have. So, diffuse large B cell and Hodgkin's lymphoma, the most common subtypes. Um, to look at. So I've got a large group of patients with imaging and then looking at how I can try and create something that's going to be useful. And I think that's everything what people have said previously. It's trying to make something that's going to be useful or it's going to make a difference. And with this group of patients, they're, well, they've got a high cure rate. So you're looking at about 80% cure rate. However, when they do fail the treatment, it's very hard to retreat them. So if I can identify how to treat these patients the best way to start off with, or if we can escalate the treatment start off with, we might be able to improve their treatment. And that's how the project's formed. But I'm still in the middle of, well, I'm halfway through my PhD and I'm sure it's going to change even more by the time I'm finished. I'm sure it's not going to go smoothly. I'm nothing ever does. That's the that's the thing with academia.
0: So someone that's supposed to try and help this go smoothly for you is your supervisor. I think they're quite important uh for this journey and uh remember the the podcast about speaking honestly uh what did your current supervisor or um a supervisor at some point shape the decision as to what you ended up doing and has that relationship developed
3: Uh, supervisors are definitely important and have been key in the whole process i think the, the good thing about my supervisors and my lead supervisor is that they are able to point me in a direction and Make me get to the answer, so they help guide me to the answer or give me guidance to look in a certain direction to get to um, to the answer, rather than giving you the answer and guided there. And I feel that's they, awesome they may that. not
0: know. Of course, that's the whole point is that they won't know, and it's their experience which is you know to rub off on you. I, I certainly found that a bit guilty, perhaps of bothering my supervisor a little too much. Uh, Tim, can I ask you a similar question about? how the topic of your PhD came to fruition.
1: Yeah, I mean, a bit like Russell, I think I had very different ideas of what I would like to end up doing. I suppose like many medical students who want to become neurosurgeons or heart surgeons, I thought maybe brain imaging or cardiac imaging would be a good thing to get into, because they just kind of seem to be cool areas really. But when it came down to it, there was an opportunity for me to get into a, interested in a project which was more about bone marrow, it was more about quantitative MRI, and I knew that I liked MRI and I also really liked my future supervisor, who was M- Margaret Hallcrags. Um, so I guess putting those things together, I found a project which I thought was good with a good supervisor and that uh, and that was enough. I, I, I decided to go for that and actually, in retrospect, it was a good thing that I did because it meant that I think I did something which was a bit more different perhaps to what many other people are already doing and it meant that I learned a lot of skills for myself, I suppose, which I wouldn't otherwise have. I think what Russell said about the project not being exactly what we expect is is actually quite typical amongst other people I've spoken to. And a lot of the advice I've had is pick the project, not the subject matter. Don't be too wedded to the subject matter. And I've kind of also become convinced that that's actually quite good advice.
0: So you've got plenty of opportunity to let it grow once you start down. Is that, in essence, what you're hinting at? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you, you know,
1: there's always a bit of a leap of faith when you start out with a project. Um, It's difficult to find something which ticks every box. You know, it might be something you might have thought about doing a project for a long time. You might have a million ideas about how you'd like it to work out. But in practice, there are only so many supervisors, there are only so many centers, there are only so many projects. So you have to pick something which you think is going to work with a supervisor that you like. So that cuts down the list of options. But I think when you go into a project, you can over time really grow it and make it your own. And sometimes by trying something which you wouldn't have thought of in the first place, you end up with a a more interesting project.
0: Uh, Thanks very much, Tim. Anu, can I come on to you and ask you the same same question about that topic, that thing that you're going to become an expert in uh, after three years? How did you come by that?
2: I think maybe I was a bit different um, from everyone else because I um, interviewed to be the research fellow on a project that already kind of had been the the outline or the protocol had already been written. So I went into um, the interview and the role knowing that this was what I was going to work on. And that has pros and cons. I think that um, the pros are that somebody has already thought about your project and knows that it's a project worth doing. So that's, I guess, the, the major positive that you know that it's already got back in, it's got buy-in, they're potentially already stakeholders, people invested in seeing the project um, through to fruition. And you're not kind of um, just trying to figure out, is this a viable research question or not? Someone's done that heavy lifting already. Um, one of the disadvantages, though, is that, um, or at least that I found, is that you're walking into like this kind of ready made project, but then how do you bring yourself into it? and kind of fighting against what well, anybody could be doing this if they you know if they had also interviewed for it and and what what is it about me that is special that i can bring to this project and how can i bring something unique that is going to make this successful so that's something that um i felt i had to navigate through and to be honest um i've got um, really excellent supervisors as well and, and And it could have gone either way. It could have been very much like, this is what we want you to do, so you kind of just need to get on and do it. Um, But they certainly gave me scope to kind of bring my own insight and think about, okay, well, what direction can we go in? How can we move this into a new area, um, develop it further from what the initial ideas were? Um, CT colonography has been around for a while and pretty much all of the heavyweights in in CT colonography are involved in my project in some way. And so I kind of, again, was like, that's like my favorite sound, skipping into this project with these people who are literally the world authorities in this, and then figuring out, well, how can I, you know, do something that is more than just data collection? Like, how am I really going to make this something? And so I focused a lot on the advantage of having that support network and saying, okay, well, you know, I am from a different background, I've had different exposure, I've had different training, so I know there's something else I can bring that they wouldn't have on this project if I wasn't there.
0: Thanks very much, uh, Annie.
1: Uh, Tim? I was just coming back on something that Annie said, which I I thought uh, she made some really good points, but I think maybe one thing that, um, one kind of decision for people to make at the start of their PhD is uh, exactly as you said, do, do you want to go into an established area or do you want to try something new and I think there are advantages to both things. If you go into an established area in some ways you can go into this ready-made product and probably have very impactful publications potentially, high-impact journals, you know, it's all really really been thought out and you're going to do some great stuff or you can try and go on your own and you, you might do well but you also run the risk of just compete, falling flat on your face and stuff not working and having to change direction and so on. So there is this balance to be struck in terms of risk i think i mean maybe the right answer is to try to have a balance of risk in your projects uh, but it's just something to be aware of when thinking about what you want to do
0: i think that's a very good point i uh, chose osteoarthritis Uh, it's not gonna be high impact Uh, my wife did genotyping of salmonella typhi Uh, that is high impact and uh, there are probably a factor of five between the impact of the factor of the publications you get out so yeah you could be very cynical about that but you have to stay true to yourself and I think you make a really good point Tim that there are decisions to be made along those lines um, at the outset. Uh, Russell you wanted to mention something?
3: Yes yeah, I was going to say and does it matter if your experiments fail in the PhD as long as you can say they did in a robust way? Does it matter if you get a high impact journal article? I know we all strive for that but in the grand scheme of things if you're trying to investigate new areas.
0: I think the process is obviously really important and I'm done. Uh, <laughs> Anu, what, do you have something on that one?
2: You're right, Russell, but it's difficult because I know that if you're doing a PhD, it's such a long time and you and I'm sure all of us will um, have felt the pinch of, you know, not progressing career wise and and our pay not progressing in the way that maybe our colleagues um, have done. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of time and finance sacrifice that we put into our projects. And so I think really i guess as an individual what you have to decide is what your measure of success will be for, for your for your time in research and so for some people a measure of success is i need to get into the lancet i need to i need to publish it i need to speak here and you know and that that is how they will measure um, that this was worth doing and other people are there for the love of the research for the love of the data and they're less bothered about I guess, those very visible outward achievements and they're more there just for the love of the subject. So I think as long as you're honest with yourself from the outset, then you can manage your expectations. For me, I know that I like to see my name in print spelled correctly. So therefore, <laughs> for me, a measure of success is seeing that in as high an impact journal as I can manage. Because it's been a long time um, that I have not been a consultant in order to do this. So I would like to, you know I would like to have those things, and I think also um I know we might touch on it later, but being a black female radiologist, there's not many of us around, and I think those extra that extra kudos that I can get out of my, doing my research will equip me to kind of be able to compete in a way that if I didn't have those things might be a bit more difficult
1: yeah and I, I think I think you make some good points, and I, I don't think you can separate out the idea of kind of doing pure research and exploring and designing your experiments and publication in this day and age in 2020, I don't think it's possible. Because the fact is that if you want to have an academic career, at the end of your PhD or the end of your postdoc or whatever it is, you have to have publications. I mean, there's just no getting away from that. I mean, if any one of us had five nature papers to our name right now, we'd probably never have to worry about getting a job for our entire career and we can spend all our time on pointless experiments and just entertaining ourselves for the rest of the career, our career, if, if we want. <laughs>
0: I think so. that's Nobel Prize level, to, uh, Tim, but uh, still, I, I get what you're but saying. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of
1: extreme example, which highlights the point.
0: Yeah, good, uh, thank you, Tim. Susie, can you give us your take on the decisions around coming to a topic and what we've also moved on in terms of impact, decisions, supervision?
4: Well, I would have loved to have walked into a ready-made project. Um, especially since I didn't have such a lot of research experience at the time I was applying, but there wasn't one available. So I I did have to come up and write a grant and develop the research idea when I was developing my PhD. Um, In my case, and this echoes some of the other speakers, the topic and the subject came last and it was really the place and the people that came first. So I knew I really wanted to work at Great Ormond Street. I really liked it there. I'd worked there before and it was a really excellent center for pediatrics and pediatric imaging. And so I just thought, well, if I'm going to dedicate time and energy to this, what's the point of being somewhere I don't like with people I don't like? That has to come first and then the project will come as a result of that. So um, when it came to the topic of what to do for my PhD, I don't think I'd ever in my life thought post-mortem imaging would be the thing that I would be an expert in or like known for, but it's a very niche thing and it's not very common, but it was an area of research that was already established at Great Ormond Street. And a lot of work, a lot of papers in high impact journals had come out of doing MRI for post-mortem imaging in children. So I was trying to see what direction I could take that in moving on from that and one of the things that I feel very passionate about is outreach work and being able to expand radiology and novel technologies for um, less developed um, countries and if anyone has ever done any pediatric imaging you'll know it's all about the ultrasound and ultrasound and post-mortem imaging hadn't really been investigated and ultrasound was something that a lot of underdeveloped and developing countries use in their radiology departments. And prior to my PhD, I had spent several weeks doing outreach work in Laos as part of a philanthropic um, program and trip. So I was very passionate about doing something in that area. So I developed a whole research study about using ultrasound ultrasound guided biopsies, minimally invasive techniques in trying to discover why children died. And um, Fortunately, I was very successful in getting the grant the first time round, but I know that was very, very lucky of me. Many people haven't been able to do that, so I guess it worked out in the end. But um, in terms of high-impact papers and publications and where I stand on that, as I alluded to earlier, I came to a crossroads after my post-CCT international fellowship in Toronto as to whether to do a consultant job, clinical route abroad in Hong Kong where I was offered a job there. It was a very high paid salary job and I turned it down to do research so just like Anu I really feel that publications have to count and I have to make this work and I have to make it work mean something because if I just spend the next three years just kind of enjoying myself and doing nothing and missing out on the other things I could have had I might feel like I'd chosen the wrong path
0: Oh, thank, oh, thanks, Susie. It's very honest. I think money is an interesting concept here because, first of all, you and I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about it today, but the fact that one might choose this career in which money isn't the motivation and or a big end product, but also the responsibility that we take if we're working on grant money and charity money to produce output that might be measured as being impactful when it's uh, other people's money that has been charitably donated. Maybe we'll have a little bit of a chance to speak about that uh, a little bit later on. So Anu, coming on um, uh, to our next question here, were there any surprises waiting ahead for you during your PhD? You know, these can be good or bad. Um, Yes,
2: there were several. Um, The one that um, immediately jumps out is the cyber attack that we had in 2017 on the, the whole the NHS infrastructure melting down basically mm-hmm. and that was right around the time that I had started the, the intervention for my project and um, part of what I was working on was um, assessing radiologists performance um, by sending them a test basically and having them read 10 scans. They have to detect all the polyps and the cancers. And yeah, and then I have to mark their results basically. Um, so I sent this out, and then the whole system imploded. And then nobody really cared about doing my test <laughs> at that point. And so um, <laughs> it was, um, and it was so demoralizing because I've worked so hard to put this together and set up this whole system. And we were supposed to be able to, um, they were supposed to be able to read the scans. On lo- like it was an absolute nightmare. And it's the kind of thing that. You, you just like COVID. You, you can't plan for it. These things are so outside of what you could even think could happen. Um, so it was, um, it was a very valuable lesson quite early on about um, developing the ability to pivot and to, um, whenever something happens, which it will inevitably, you have to have a fail safe or um, have just the wherewithal to shake it off and keep it moving because you can't afford to kind of stay in that um, disappointment and frustration um, um, or kind of stay behind the obstacle like if if I can't test the radiologist then I have no project so I need to work out um, find the money find the resource put the hours in to kind of repackage whatever you need to do and the thing is it's not even um it's not rocket science you know have a backup of your backup but i've been shown that so many different ways um during the research that um it's not i don't know if it's a surprise i suppose it's the surprise is how that that lesson was delivered if you like and um and even like backups of my backups like backup of my backup of my hard drive like that melted and broke and it was like yeah but it's what are you doing like how yeah i
0: i had that um hot chocolate all over my computer with two months to go absolute no. disaster absolute freak out but you know backups of backups
2: yeah and it's like not uh it, everybody everybody has a horror story and everybody but then we still don't back up enough learn?
0: exactly. russell um any hot chocolate disasters or anything similar uh, keeping on your toes
3: I've, i haven't had any hot chocolate disasters i can report um i think the main surprise or the main thing that is Everything seems to take time in academia. It's just having stuff to do while you're waiting for your computer to be installed, which takes six months, or waiting for um, your your data to arrive, or waiting for your patients to be scanned. It's just having something to to do in that time. And the other surprise, um, it's the elephant in the room. Am I allowed to say the C-bomb? Oh, not the C-bomb, the C-word in this, uh, in this podcast?
0: <laughs> I trust you, otherwise you're gonna have to get out the beeper. I'm so used to hearing it I didn't even register yeah no absolutely so yeah I, I, this is very much a live thing for you if you're in the middle of your PhD yeah do you want to give us yeah, a little so bit looking, of an insight?
3: Well so looking at patient outcomes it it automatically puts a cut off for looking at survival data so you've lost follow-up data for your patients because after COVID Survival is going to be skewed slightly. you're going to tell if the patient's got COVID or they've died from lymphoma or died from whatever disease you're looking at? So it does put a, well. It has changed a lot of people's research.
0: Okay. Well, given the times that we are currently living in, the challenge that poses with COVID-19 to researchers. Have you found everyone around um, your project, so supervisors, the university, people that might um, you know be judging the content of your PhD down the line? Have they been understanding?
3: Yeah, so everyone's been understanding the university. Uh, My tutor at university uh, offered to give me an extension. My supervisors have all, well, they've all been faced with similar circumstances they understand, Um, but yeah, um, I can't fault anyone really. Even the funding has been, they said they'd extend it if needs be, so yeah, it's all been good.
0: Well, that sounds perfect. I mean, I was gonna also ask about funders, Um, Tim, can I put that same uh, initial question uh, to you about things that have gone well or badly for you during your PhD? Because you've finished yours uh, now, haven't you? Yeah, I
1: finished a couple of years ago. I finished in 2018. I mean, one of the difficult, kind of a chronic difficulty during my PhD was recruiting patients. Um, I wasn't in a situation where I had anyone to help me with that. I, I did have some colleagues who had kind of um funded research nurses and things who could bring up patients and help with that but i was sort of trying to manage that um alongside the actual project itself um, so there was actually quite a lot involved in that in terms of initially giving patients information sheets ringing them up asking if they wanted to take part and some of the patients that i recruited were teenagers so um there were some difficulties around you know whether they wanted to come They kind of had a tantrum on the day whether their parents would bring them and i had pretty high dropout rates so that was something which was you know there was a lot of effort that went into every patient that actually ended up being scanned so that that was quite difficult i didn't have any major disasters during my phd at the moment things are difficult for me as they are for everyone and i've got an ethics application which i wrote three or four months ago which has just been sitting with the um, local ethics committee and they kind of tell me that they're going to get to it but it's basically not not moving and i think that's partly because not not just because of the disruption caused by covid but also because covid studies are being prioritized so if you're not doing covid research at the moment then you're sort of taking a bit of a back seat to the people that are there's always the chance to try and think of a covid related project but it feels like a bit of shoehorning in some some instances
0: you just have to look at what's been published right now and see what uh, you know with the retrospectoscope would have told you to make the subject for your phd and there we go yes. um susie and yourself any surprises any good good bits bad bits did the world stay together for you
4: Yeah, on the whole, I'm a very positive person. So even when things go wrong, I see it as a good thing. But um, in general, um, one of the biggest things that I found a challenge during my PhD was the fact that it turned into a clinical service even before my research was done. So what do you do when what you're researching ends up being practice even before you have the evidence to call it? routine practice were good enough for a practice in a way. So for example, I was doing post-mortem ultrasounds on babies that had died to find out whether there were any congenital anomalies or other things that could have contributed to that death. And then the pathologists were supposed to then do the autopsy and that would be my reference standard by which to measure my diagnostic accuracy. But after doing a year of these ultrasounds, the pathologists were like, oh, you're pretty good at this. We don't have to do the autopsy anymore. Oh, what did you see? Oh, great. All right, let's just write our autopsy report. And i was then stuck with, no guys, I need you to do the autopsy. I mean, how am I going to get my reference standard if you just accept, what I say, how do I know anything I'm doing is good enough then? never going to make the sample size prediction if uh, I just stop now and finish after a year with no other autopsies being done. So that was interesting and it was more communicating that to the pathologist, you know, explaining what my project was about, explaining what was good and less than ideal practice um, for example and it did make me reflect on how many other things we do in medicine have been adopted before enough evidence has been published or collected just because people go seems to work with a few people it seems to like save us time and energy let's just do it from now on so that was an interesting experience to have so I guess that was the biggest challenge that I had in fact um, I feel guilty to say that Covid in some ways has been quite good for my research in that it's meant that it's come at a time where I've been, towards the end of my PhD, most of the data has been collected. It's offered me time to stay at home, to write up my thesis and to revise for my Viva and to write grants for the next fellowship going forward. So uh, it hasn't really had much of an impact for me.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm every, Every cloud of virulence has a silver lining perhaps, if you look at it in a certain way. We've all talked about what we've got up to but that's been the research side of things and Russell if I can come to you and one of the questions people may be asking themselves if I'm going to do this for three years what's happening to my clinical skills during that period and uh, what are you doing during your PhD to keep in touch with those?
3: I think it's difficult to uh, I think it's probably not feasible to be able to say that I'm going to keep all my clinical skills and do my academia at the same time and try and be the best of both worlds. So, for me, I am doing a one day of clinical a week, which is a acute CT session and another session, which is either head and neck or vascular, um, which I rotate around to try and keep some skills. But I'm fully aware that by the, the end of my PhD, I'm go- I am going to have to step up and also pick up skills again because. As I, said, I don't think it's feasible to try and keep everything going at the same time.
0: Anu, can I ask what you uh, have done?
2: Uh, I was not very successful. Um, I think initially, um, even though I walked into a ready-made project, there was still quite a lot to do from kind of the beginning and um, it was. I think I was supposed to do three and two, so three days of research, two days of clinical and pretty rapidly um, that wasn't going to be sustainable. I think um, like Tim, you really, or I really underestimated the amount of time that it would take to recruit and kind of walk every participant through the journey, kind of retain them, try and minimize dropouts. And that is really, really labor intensive. Um, And especially, I mean, I wasn't dealing with patients. I was dealing with consultant radiologists who don't have time to do their jobs often, let alone, you know, be part of what I'm asking them to do, which was very labour intensive. So that all of that organization and kind of moving things around took a lot of time. And so I had to make a, a call quite early on, I think maybe towards the end of the first year, like what what am I going to do? Um, like Russell said, you it's really difficult to do both well. And you can end up doing both, but doing neither of them well. And that as we've already no it was not my goal.
0: Did you find you had to renegotiate the, the the times that you were committing to the research and clinical?
2: No absolutely, so I did have to renegotiate and um, so I ended up going almost full-time research um, from about halfway through, Um, and and to be honest, that was the best decision because I was able to really push through um, and get the interventions done, and and then I also had a baby kind of sandwiched in the middle of that, that's always helpful. Um, So it just meant that there was so much to do, like before I went on maternity leave, etc, so I had to be full-time in research, and obviously that has a knock-on effect, so now that I'm coming towards the end of my three years, as it were, I'm going to start a clinical fellowship, and so for me it just feels like oh goodness sake, woman! Like when are you <laughs> gonna finish all of this? But at the same time, I don't want to come out of research having done all of this great work and then be a liability. And I know that my clinical skills are not where they should be in order for me to go into a consultant post. So I have opted to apply for a clinical fellowship, and so I'll do that for up to a year and then go into my consultant post. But it was a it was a hard decision because it's like another year of not looking for your consultant post. But I suppose you know we're looking at this as a long game, and there is there is no rush. What I would say um, lastly is that if you are going to try and integrate um, clinical work with your research, is that you need to have clinical sessions that are non negotiable. So they need to be things you need to turn up for. So like acute CT or an ultrasound list or fluoro or something. If it's cold reporting, you will always say you'll make it up later, which is basically what I was doing. So, but if it's a list that you're roted for, you know, you've got to apply for leave six weeks in advance to be absent, then, you know, you'll find a way to make it work. Um, So yeah, so that I guess you can do to kind of protect that time.
0: And there's also another question here, maybe what your outlook is for the whole career. Um, Maybe if you were thinking, I'm going to be hitting an academic job in which maybe 20% 20 of my time is going to be clinical, you start to focus down. You get used to that concept. I mentioned last time that for me, in my position, it's juggling lots of different things. I've still perhaps a little bit, as anyone might say who knows me, undecided about all of that. So Tim, uh, for you, you've talked a lot about research as being part of your long-term uh, career plan. So what was it the decisions that you had made during your PhD about trying to keep those clinical skills up?
1: I actually had a fairly simple setup I just did on call um, at UCH we, we, we have a kind of a cute team set up so there are three people on call and I was one of those people and I just, I just did that um, at the normal rate, the normal kind of on-call rate which is on our road and it worked out about one, one day a week um, which gave me a little bit more um, income and yeah just kept my skills up. I mean actually that worked very well for me because just doing general on-call I think gave me quite a broad exposure to lots of things and I suppose coming back after that um, the one thing that people do want you to be competent at is is on call so yeah that worked pretty well actually
0: so were you another one of these people that ended up being a seven in their seventh year on the senior on call rector which is kind of where i was yes that's not
1: not quite that extreme but a a bit like (laughs) yeah yeah
0: Yeah. susie and how about how about yourself about balancing the clinical and the academic work during your phd
4: yeah, that was pretty hard. I always felt because, as I've said before, that clinical work should come first, you should be a good doctor, and then the research will come with that. So I always felt guilty when I was doing research that I wasn't doing clinical. And when I was doing clinical, I felt guilty that I was neglecting my research. I think finding time to do clinical work was easy in pediatrics. As you all are very aware, there is a workforce shortage in radiology and particularly in pediatrics. So if you ever want to do any pediatric clinical work, there's plenty to go around. Um, So my setup was one day clinical and also uh, contributing to the on-call rotor. so my clinical day used to be my on-call day at the same time just to make it easier and at Great Ormond Street you are on call roughly once every week anyway, so that worked out pretty well. Um, In addition to that, um, during my PhD I was also trying to save up for a a wedding and I was also dating my boyfriend, now husband, who was on a fellowship in Vancouver at the time. So I had to find a way to fund multiple transatlantic flights throughout the year. And so given the fact that there's a lot of paediatric work to go around, I ended up doing extra work list initiatives at St. Mary's Hospital and paediatric imaging and working weekends doing ultrasound lists at St. George's Hospital as well. So I think at one point I counted I had three or four different jobs at one time, (laughs) which is... um, quite a lot to deal with.
0: Whilst still trying to actually be doing your PhD?
4: Yes, but it meant that I didn't really feel my clinical skills um, dropped. And um, one way I would test that would be every year, you know, I would go to RSNA and I would basically see how many cases of the day in peds, fetal and obstetrics I would get correct. And if I got them all correct every year, I'd be like, I'm doing fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would do terribly.
4: I didn't care if I didn't get you know the GI or the chest or the cardiac cases but I had to get the piece Uh
0: Tim, have you got something
1: else you'd like to say on this? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that one thing I've always found a bit difficult is kind of just switching between research and clinical. Maybe this is just me but I've always found that you know either when I was doing my PhD for example I felt like I was more focused on the research and then when I was doing clinical I kind of found it difficult to get into and I sort of felt like I should be doing the research and then coming back and now I do 50-50 I I just find it hard to switch between modes I suppose and um, yeah maybe some people find that easier but I think that's just one thing to kind of
0: I find it impossible. I find it really hard. I mean, I go because I did my PhD in engineering and did scripting and coding. If I get on a run in my research of doing coding, I'm just completely absorbed. My wife doesn't even sort of get anything through to me. Uh, You know, can't have a conversation with me over dinner. I'm a bit like that episode where Homer Simpson wants to go off to clown college and starts building a, a big top out of his mashed potato um it i think it's a re- really difficult uh, Anna, you also had something you wanted to bring in on this uh, not about mashed potato i i hope
2: no not about mashed potato i was going to say i had um a misconception that um going into research would give me more time and um like and i was told by more than one person it's also a good time to have a baby I mean, I think you should just have a baby whenever you want to have a baby. It's, it's difficult to get pregnant. So if you get pregnant, go for it. Like, so that's my advice on that. But regarding that and academia, trying to write and submit and do revisions to your paper when you've not slept more than 33 minutes not the best and so for me, I think, because I, I'm listening to all of you talking about your clinical skills and doing on call and for me, doing on call was literally the, the furthest thing from my mind and whilst I can see that it is an amazing way and very useful way to keep up your clinical skills, I think it a large factor in whether or not you feel capable of doing that is where you are in other areas of your life and like Susie said, you know, she was getting married, she was, you know, commuting long distance and you know all of those things would have had an impact on the choices that you make and um, so for me at least I think this is my excuse basically I'm validating my life of keeping up my clinical skills because I had a, a babe in arms basically but I think that if you are trying to juggle new marriage or buying a house or having a kid with academia I think probably all of us have done each of those things it's definitely possible but I don't know that it's easier doing it during that season than it is if you were in clinical
0: practice basically. I think yeah I think you have to make uh, decisions about all of those and not least because of what your bank manager might say. Um, Exactly. Let's talk about as someone, as you have mentioned, has finished your PhD in 2018, you had to make some decisions and about how you're going to take the next steps, whether that be finding money, finding a job, give us some insight into the kind of challenges you faced at that time as your PhD was finishing and the new, you know, the new horizon was becoming visible.
1: Yeah, I think I always knew I wanted to carry on doing research. I felt when I was coming to the end of my PhD like I was, you know, falling off the edge of a cliff because um, I suppose you go from being quite knowledgeable about something and uh, people sort of thinking that you're quite good at research to going back to clinical at something you've not done for a long time uh, in such detail and, and you'll kind of feel like you're starting at the beginning again to an extent almost. So that, that was a bit difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me, after having looked at looked at a few options, like a clinical lecturer post would be a good way forward, but there there weren't that many of them, in fact. Um, so, I, I, I basically, I just asked around. I, I found out that there was one coming up which would fit for me, and I applied for it. I, I guess I did do quite a lot of uh, groundwork and research in terms of figuring out what posts would be available and when and trying to think about the timings. In some ways, I think that was a bigger challenge than Actually getting the post, because by the time you get to that point, to be honest, there aren't that many people who have the relevant background, so so in a way, I think just there being a, a post in the right area is 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 the biggest obstacle
0: um, yeah that's that would be nice to have that fit I mean I remember treating it as a year by year thing, thinking, okay, ticking down to first year report, then the second year, which was not much, and then the vi, but then also remembering that actually, I better have a job. At the other end, and I personally, I was lucky to be given a fellowship at Stanmore to, you know, hone my specialist MSK skills. Whatever I was going to end up doing beyond that, so that was the approach that I took. Now, Russell, you're at the other end of the PhD conveyor belt. Have you been thinking about this yet, or are you just still in PhD la la land? Uh,
3: I'm, am trying to hide from the decision. I think that's where I am at the moment. <laughs> I know I've got to come back into clinical and think about jobs, but at the moment, I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm focused on my coding, that's what it is, I'm just constantly coding, just trying to avoid everything else. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know, I think I think that I, I'll come back into, well, I'm going to have to come back into PhD at some point, with COVID, prolongs it however long, but I'll be looking into, I'm going into my specialty training, I've got two years left of training, and then applying for a consultant position after that, and hopefully a position with academic time, but it's trying to find one of those, I think that's the difficulty.
0: Susie, for yourself, I know you've given us a little hint, hints already, but the next steps.
4: Yeah, I'm actually quite jealous of people who have clinical time to go back into. Um, being someone who's pretty much done all the clinical plus the fellowship before the PhD, it's it's been quite stressful. And as I said before, having COVID lockdown time has been useful in some respect in that. I've had to use this time to write my PhD thesis by the make the corrections, apply for another fellowship grant and also apply for consultant jobs all at the same time because you know it takes a year for a grant to you know, come into fruition if you're lucky enough to get it, and I don't have another year to wait for that to you know, bounce off and seamlessly flow on from what I'm doing right now. So it, it would have been nice to have had at least another year of clinical work to go into as a buffer time. So that's what I've been doing now. Um, I've got a clinical consultant job to go into, but as I said, I've also applied for an advanced fellowship grant with the NIHR. Hopefully, I hope to get invited for an interview in January and see whether that is successful. And if it is, it probably will start in July next year. But it's hard to make all these steps marry up, especially at the end.
0: Oh well, best of luck with the applications. I think. Um the not knowing, the many options, you have to have sympathetic employers, supervisors, and the more that we can raise awareness of the challenges of those decisions, perhaps the easier it will be for people to facilitate for us around us, for those people that we need to do that. Uh, Tim, do you have something else you wanted to add? I just need to
1: ask Susie a quick question, which is, in, in terms of planning ahead, for if you get the fellowship, have you found it difficult to... Kind of negotiate that with your future employers in terms of having a situation where you 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 go in presumably as more or close to a full-time consultant and then maybe you drop back to much less than that. Do you think that's something that would be difficult to to get them on board with?
4: I don't know what they actually think, but what they have said to me is that it's fine. Maybe they don't realise the impact of that to begin with, but um, they they have been very supportive of research in general and have said go for it, we'll support you, whatever you need. Just let us know how things work out. Or, or, you know, maybe they don't think I'm going to get it so it doesn't seem to factor into their thinking, perhaps.
0: I'd like to add in on that one. I think the right employer, the right organization in terms of the trust and the clinical side is key. If they are wanting to be an organization supporting research, and I think you should, anyone that's listening, look carefully, Um, and think carefully about what those options are for the people that are going to be employing you as well. Um, Anu, did you have any further thoughts on this?
2: Uh, Yeah, it's interesting listening to everybody's um, pathways and journeys. I think I really see the value of doing your research a bit earlier and having, um, like Susie said, the kind of buffer of clinical practice to go back into afterwards um, as a kind of bridge. I think, um, like Tim a bit, I feel like I'm coming to the end and there is literally this abyss that I'm standing at the edge of and um, it's knowing that you maybe are not as clinically astute as you used to be but you've developed all of these other really amazing skills but you also really need a job Um, and maybe you you do or you don't have the next piece of research work lined up immediately ready to go to kind of just step into Um, so having if you were able to if you want to do research and you're able to get an opportunity earlier, um, there are definite advantages to stepping into that, pausing your training and then going back to finish your training. Um, I was post-CCT so there is no training for me to go into and I did feel for quite a lot of my research that I'm in this grey area, like I'm not on a training program, so you don't have any of that pastoral support or care um, and then people will be like, oh, Oh, you're post cct okay well that's fine then it's not really fine because like i still have needs
0: and stuff so it's interesting i know i was in exactly the same gray area no one seemed to want to take uh mm. I wouldn't say responsibility i'm a big boy i should be able to look after myself but there are certain professional obligations such yeah. as appraisal and that was a gray mm. area uh, the college um, the, uh, there wasn't a trust that was going to be looking after that side of things um there was a university employing me um but yeah that's an interesting point i think with all of this um Mm. we have to have discussions and i think discussions that start early i'm sorry russell (laughs) (laughs) but you have got two years of your training to go so you know that does really help. And I think it's not uncommon for PhD to start late. I think we're we're discovering they start all different times of your training. There are routes out to do clinical lecturer posts. If you're post CCT into consultant posts, academic fellowships, there's lots. Find out more on the NIHR MRC Welcome Trust website about that and the the academic paths that you can take. Okay, so look, we're coming towards the end of this second episode of the Crash Podcast. And just like we did in episode one it's quite fun to find out what people think they might be up to in 10 years time so Tim let's start with you and just give us an idea of where you hope to be
1: I don't know about in 10 years time but ultimately I'd, I'd like to have a substantive university post so that's really the goal and at some point I'd like to have a have a research group hopefully working on on quantitative MRI
0: good stuff Susie what about yourself
4: very similarly I, I- I don't know if 10 years is when this will happen but I do hope to be an NIHR professor in the future and leading a research team on novel digital technologies for pediatric disease diagnosis and I really hope that outreach work will be a key component in that and everything that we do develop will be for greater patient
0: benefit and can be applicable to lesser developed countries as well. Thanks Susie and Anna yourself, what about 10 years?
2: I feel like everybody's so accomplished. Um, So in 10 years, I would love to be able to train and educate radiologists, um, not This might be controversial, not just in CT colonography, but what I've found through my research is that I really enjoy the training aspect of things and training um, in a proven way, in a proven method to really improve people's performance. And so I think there is a lot that we can take from the work that we've done that can be applied to other areas, to other communities, to other countries. And so I would really love to see,
0: um, to build a model that can be replicated. Great stuff. And uh, finally, Russell, what about you, 10 years' time?
3: Yeah, I think I'm going to echo what the others have said, but in 10 years' time, I want to be a consultant working with a mixed clinical academic job, working towards a chair in the university, but also continue to work with AI modelling and hopefully have five nature papers and uh, be well on my way.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great stuff. Well, look, let's look not 10 years ahead, but one year. Look, if we should by some chance have an opportunity to talk again, maybe we can find out where each of you have got to in a year's time. If you'd be willing to come back and uh, tell us. Yeah, sure. Yep. Good stuff. Well, thanks ever so much, everybody. So that's all we have time for this episode. It's been a huge pleasure to have you all together to talk about everything you've been through so far and what the future might hold. I'd like to thank our guests once more, Tim Bray, Anu Abaro, Russell Frude, and Susie Shalmadine, Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for supporting this podcast, and Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. You can find show notes at the RCR website where there are further details about this podcast and our guests, And if you have any questions for the panel or myself about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's conf, C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. We'll be releasing episode three next week when we find out what happens for the next wave of academic radiologists as they reach the point of breaking through. So join us then and every Wednesday up until the virtual RCR Research Day on Wednesday, the 18th of November, when our guests will come together for a live roundtable discussion and answer your questions. Finally, if you are a radiology trainee with an interest in research, whatever your background or your goals, find out about Radiant, which is the radiology academic network for trainees and get yourself and your training scheme involved. You can find out more at www.radiantuk.com. I've been your host, Tom Termezide. Tell your friends and colleagues about The Crash Podcast, subscribe, and if you've enjoyed it, give it a thumbs up. Until next time, stay safe.